Good morning, MCBC. It's great to be with you today. Uh, if you were with us during Holy Week and on Easter weekend, you will know that we have been traveling through the Gospel of John. And today we come to the conclusion in chapter 21. I believe it's a very deep and rich chapter, and I look forward to getting into it with you. Uh, but why don't we begin with a word of prayer? Lord, we thank you so much that we can gather together, that we can worship you, even if it is online, Lord, that we can, uh, that we have this opportunity now to get into your word. We thank you for your word, for the treasure that it is to us. Lord, for this gospel, we thank you for it, for all that it tells us about you, about your son, Jesus. Lord, I just pray that as we open it up today, that you would illuminate it by your spirit, that you would challenge us, encourage us, and teach us. Amen. Many of you will be familiar with uh, the Pixar movies. I certainly am. It felt like there was a 10-year stretch where that was pretty much the bulk of the movies I watched came out of the Pixar studios. For those of you who don't know what Pixar movies are, um, they're animated movies for kids. And I think... Uh, I was a parent during the golden age of Pixar, to be honest, with movies like Finding Nemo, the Toy Story movies, um, Monsters, Inc., Ratatouille. Uh, but my favorite movie in all of those was The Incredibles. And uh, if you don't know what The Incredibles are, it's really it's a story about four kids, but it's about this family of superheroes. Uh, there was Mr. Incredible, and he got married to Elastigirl. Elastigirl was very stretchy. Mr. Incredible was very strong. And they had three kids. All of them had superpowers as well. But for a number of reasons, these superheroes are not able to use their powers. They'd be kind of forced underground and forced to live, you know, different lives, normal lives. And so you, as the movie begins, you catch up with this family of superheroes that is living in suburban America, very normal, quiet lives. Mr. Incredible is this hulk of a man. He works in insurance and he works in this cubicle. He takes up half the size of the cubicle when you see him. And he drives this tiny, tiny little car, which he kind of is always hunched over as he drives. And so at the beginning of the movie, you see that he's very frustrated that he's not able to use his powers and he wants to. One day he's driving home from work. He pulls into the driveway and as he gets out, he steps on a skateboard. He almost slips. And as he grabs the car, he dents it with his strength. And then he tries to close the door. It won't. So he slams it. Won't, the door won't close. So he slams it and the glass breaks. In frustration, he grabs the car with one hand and just picks it up. And as he picks it up, he sees this little neighborhood kid at the end of the driveway. And his eyes are really big. The bubble of chewing gum pops in his mouth. Mr. Incredible slowly brings the car down and tiptoes into the house. A few scenes later, we see him driving home back again into his driveway. And he pulls in. And as he gets out of the car, he notices the same little kid sitting at the end of the driveway. And he says, what are you waiting for? And the kid says, I don't know. Something amazing, I guess. That kid couldn't unsee what he had seen. He had seen his neighbor, you know, a normal guy. His name was Bob Parr. He had seen that guy, you know, lift up a car. He was amazed by it. And now he, that he knows it, he's waiting for something else. 
is waiting for more amazing things to come. I think as we begin our chapter today in John 21, the resurrection has occurred. Jesus has appeared to his disciples on more than one occasion and to various people. And things have changed for them. The events of the last week, whatever months, uh, things have changed. They're no longer the same. The reality has changed. Even though they didn't understand it, right up to the moment of his arrest, they were confused about what his kingdom was. And Thomas, even after the resurrection, you know, still had his doubts about who Jesus was. But things had changed for them. The resurrection, Easter, had given them a new reality for them, and it does it for us as well as Christians. Not only our view of Jesus changed, because he's done amazing things, he's overcome death. Not only that, but we have a clear, more clarity spiritually. We have a better relationship with God. Richard spoke last week about that word, tetelestai, it is finished. Right? It's paid in full. The, the deal's done. Things are completed. Right? Salvation is now a reality. We can have be spiritually satisfied now. Before that, we couldn't. We can live in the reality of God's kingdom and be ultimately fulfilled in him. The problem is, even though our reality has changed, we don't always live in that reality. We, most of us probably watching this have made a decision to follow Christ. But if we're honest, the worries and the concerns and things of the world kind of overwhelm us at different points. We're not able to really enjoy the reality of living in him. We need to be reminded of that. We have a choice day by day if we want to or not. Moment by moment, situation by situation. Are we going to be, are we going to live in that reality or are we not going to live in that reality? Today I want to look at the passage as we do. Um, you'll see and notice that uh, the real key thing here is the relationship between Peter and Jesus. The other disciples as well, but Peter and Jesus are the key key ones. And I think there are some really key reminders, good reminders for us in this story as we walk through. There's three kind of events that happen that I think will help us as we try to live in the reality of Jesus' resurrection, try to live in the reality of Easter. The first thing that we can learn from Peter in this passage is the importance of living a life devoted to Christ. So as we begin the passage, we find the disciples out on the Sea of Galilee fishing. Peter had decided to go and he took six disciples or they decided to go with him. But they've, although they've been out all night long, they haven't caught a single thing. And in verse 4, we find that it says this, if you want to follow along, chapter 21, verse 4. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When he did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, 
He wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing a net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. So here they are, maybe frustrated. They've been sitting out there all night. Jesus says, hey, you caught anything? Of course, the answer to that question is no. <laughs> Maybe it's a bit of a ribbing. But then he he produces this miracle. And it's not the f- first time he's done it. He'd done this way back. It's recorded in Luke 5. And they had, he did the same kind of thing. Peter, you think, would have recognized that. But he didn't. You know, John, John's the one. Maybe John's a little bit more sensible. Maybe, um, you know, cerebral maybe. But John's the one who recognizes it. To Peter's credit, though, as soon as he hears and recognizes that Jesus is the one who's on the shore, he puts on his clothes, he makes himself decent, and he jumps in the water and he wades in. This passage tells us they weren't far away. But Peter wanted just wanted so desperately to get to the shore that he jumped in with his clothes on and went towards, started wading in towards the towards Jesus. Peter's an interesting personality that I think um, I think we can all relate to him on some levels. Maybe we don't behave like him, but we can all relate to him. Uh, he's an impulsive guy. He had, wears his heart on his sleeve. Uh, he's the guy who always asks the questions everybody else is afraid to. Um, he's the one who proclaims Jesus the Messiah. And he's the one who walks on water. He walked on water. He's also the one who fell in the water. He's the one who said to Jesus, no, you're not going to wash my feet. Until Jesus explained why that had to happen. And then he was all in. Wash everything. And I think that kind of describes Peter's personality. He's all in. He's completely committed to the things he believes in. He made big mistakes and he had big successes. And he's not done. Look at Galatians. You want to see more mistakes for Peter. Um, But he was a leader of these men. He's still a leader, even after denying Christ, we see, because they came fishing with him. I think we like to read him, because even if we're not like Peter, you know, maybe we're not as demonstrative with our feelings. I, you know, maybe we're, we would never ask the questions that Peter asks, or feel the, you know, we can understand them. We would think those questions in our head. We would feel those feelings. So we can relate to him on that level. Sometimes we're glad we're not Peter. Other times we wish we were. We wish we were the ones who did what he did. But if you're like Peter or you're not like Peter, I think we can all learn something from him. In in here we see a, an example of devotion, you know, a passion to follow Christ. Some people might say, you know, Peter was, you know, still feeling guilty about his betrayal, and they're probably right, you know. He hasn't, uh, you know, he betrayed Jesus three times after, you know, making these big claims that he would, you know, die for him. He had betrayed him. And if you're, any, if you're anything like me and you've ever broken somebody's trust, you know how much you want to try to gain that back. You want to reconcile and you're looking for every opportunity to do that. So maybe that's what's going on. Maybe Peter's looking, you know, to just demonstrate how much he loves Jesus, he's trying to reconcile and prove himself again to Christ. But I think there's something more going on here. Um, it's not by accident the story takes us back to the Sea of Galilee, to a fishing boat, where we see this miracle repeated. And that takes us back, like I mentioned already, to Luke 5, 
when Peter had made his decision to follow Christ. You know, in that in that instance, Jesus had given him his new calling. It said, "Come with me, and I will make you fishers of men." So as he jumps out of the boat, it's almost like he's leaving that life behind. He's found something much more precious, much more treasured. And he's driving towards that. Reminds us of the you know parable of the pearl or the parable of the you know the field in Matthew, you know, thirteen. Where we give up everything for the one precious thing. That's what Peter is doing here. That's his devotion to Christ. And it's the kind of devotion that God wants for us. Jesus wants to see that from us. He wants us to make him the primary thing. Serving him and knowing him to be the first and most important thing in our lives. That's what Jesus wants. He wants us to live a life devoted to him. So that's the first thing we learned from Peter. Living a life devoted to Christ. That's the way that we can stay in this new reality. The second thing... I think is living in fellowship with Christ. So first we have living a life devoted to Christ. The second thing we learn from Peter is living in fellowship with Christ. And I want to jump down to verses 9 through 14, if you'll read along with me. When they landed, they saw a fire burning of fire burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish. 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared to ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus had appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. So, as Peter and the disciples you know, arrive on shore, they're greeted with a meal. They're greeted with the warmth of a fire and a time of fellowship, you know, with their friend, with their savior, Jesus. You know, when you love somebody, you want to spend time and you want to fellowship with them. But what are the elements of fellowship? We might think, you know, here we have a few. We have food. We have friends, intimacy, relationship. We have the warmth of the fire gathering together. And I, but I think as we look at those physical things, they take on a new light in terms of the reality of Easter and the reality of Jesus' resurrection for us. Of course, we know that fellowship involves food, um, you know, and Jesus comes and provides it for them. First thing, come and have breakfast, is what he says. And he welcomes his friends to eat something that he has prepared for them. Food is a sign of intimacy across cultures. We know that, uh, many cultures, but especially in that culture at that time. Um, if you remember, Jesus was criticized because he was eating and drinking with the tax collectors and sinners by the Pharisees, right? That showed you how important it was that you ate with the right people or who you identified with, who you associated with was important. So food is a big deal. Even in our culture, I think we understand that, who you have over to your house. But you might remember the uh, the ad campaign from President's Choice a few years ago, Eat Together, hashtag Eat Together. It's all about having people come together in community and how we've kind of lost that and the importance of that in our culture and importance of reconnecting around food. So food and fellowship are always go together. But I think we understand that it's more than just a physical thing. There's a spiritual food. Jesus himself calls him, he, call, he says, I am the bread of life. 
I am the bread of heaven. He brings life to the world, right? He brings satisfaction. If we if we take part in him, we'll never hunger or thirst again. Right? That's those are amazing promises that are part of this new reality of living in the reality of the resurrection. Right? As we receive this spiritual food in fellowship, right? This is going to help to sustain us and help us to grow in our faith. There's no other way that we can. So fellowship involves food, but it involves warmth. Uh, being together around a fire. You have this cold fire of coals. I don't know, for Peter, he just jumped out of the boat. Who knows how cold it was that morning. But he might have appreciated a warm fire to sit by. And I think if we think about coming into a warm, cozy you know, cabin after being out in a cold winter's night, there's something inviting about it. Um, it's a campfire as well. It's something that we congregate around. People don't tend to build fires just for themselves. I mean, you might if you're by yourself. But what you see is if you build a fire, people will come and gather around and enjoy its warmth. But the warmth is also more than just a physical thing, right? Warmth brings comfort. And I think about, you know, that comfort. We have Jesus promising in John 14 that the Holy Spirit would come. The Holy Spirit is often described as a comforter, somebody who brings peace, right? Somebody who will advocate for us. Right? He said, you know, somebody, Jesus tells us he's not leaving us alone, but there'll be somebody to come. You know, we shouldn't be troubled by that. And this comforter will come and remind us of all these truths. The comforter will come and, and bring us peace in our hearts. So, in fellowship, the Holy Spirit can work. If we fellowship with Christ, the Spirit begins to move and to change. Interestingly enough, this couldn't have happened before Christ ascended to heaven. Right? Christ says, I'm leaving, I'm sending one after me, or my Father is sending one after me. The Spirit came after Christ left. The third thing that the Spirit brings is an intimacy with God. If you notice in the passage, nobody it says, nobody dared to ask, who are you? Because they knew it was Jesus. Right? They had seen all the events transpire. They had seen... Jesus, after the resurrection, this is the third time that they're seeing him. They knew who he was. They didn't have to ask that question anymore. There was an intimacy that they had. It was an intimacy, actually, that was promised before before the resurrection. If we look at John 15, the night Jesus was betrayed, or he rested, he says, I no longer call you servants, because a servant does not, a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I have learned from my Father, I have made known to you. Then he says in John, before that, in John 15, verse 4, Abide in me, and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit, unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you, unless you abide in me. Our lives are intertwined. There's an intimacy now with Christ. That all happens in the because of the reality of Easter, because of what happened there. As a result of that, we can have that that relationship, that friendship with God. We can have that friendship with Christ. We can have that intimacy with Him. And it's only through Him that our lives can bear fruit. So our lives are intricately intertwined with God's. And that's an amazing element of the fellowship that we have with Him. Fellowship also involves growing together with other believers. Right? As we grow individually, but we also grow and have this intimacy as we grow together as a community. We see that. They're sitting around a fire together, learning from Jesus. 
and their different personalities. Peter and John were different people, but they helped each other grow. We see in Hebrews 10, 25, often quoted, don't give up eating together as some are in the habit of doing. It's important that we gather together. Colossians 3, 16 says, let the message of Christ dwell in, among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Right? God wants us to grow together. He, he saved us into community to live with each other and to encourage and spur each other on, to challenge each other, to remind each other of, these, of the new reality that we live in, to testify to it, to testify to what God's doing in our lives and in the world around us. So far, we, we can follow, learn from Peter to live a life devoted to Christ. We can also learn from Peter and the other disciples what it is to live in fellowship with Christ. So far in the story, things have been pretty great. They've had a big catch of fish, a nice breakfast on the beach. But things are about to get a little bit more serious now. So as we continue on in this conversation, this interaction between Jesus and Peter, Jesus and the disciples... We can learn what it means to live on mission for Christ, the importance of living on mission for Christ. Let's take a look at verses 15 through 17. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus had asked him a third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. As I look at that interaction, I see that it's almost two pronged. One's looking back and one's looking forward. Looking back to the Peter's denial the night of his arrest, Three times he was denied. Three times Jesus asked him, do you love me? It was a public denial. And here he's addressing it publicly in front of his friends, in front of the other disciples. The first question, he says, do you love me more than these? So we see that it's a comparative, but we're not really sure what he's comparing. Uh, We don't know what these is referring to, for sure. Some people say that these might refer to, do you love me more than the disciples love me? The other disciples love me. It might refer to, do you love me more than you love the other disciples? Or the third explanation that I've heard is, do you love me more than the things around? So, you know, the fish, the boats, the nets. Do you love me more than you love your old life? That seems to kind of connect with the rest and the thrust of the passage of Peter leaving his old life and going into something new, answering a new calling also fits with Christ's response of feed my lambs, take care of my sheep. I think the ultimate question that Jesus is looking here is he's challenging Peter to recommit himself, to, to devote himself again to him. He's asking him, do you really love me? How much do you love me? What are you willing, how far are you willing to go? There's a challenge in there. John explains that Peter's feelings were hurt because Christ asked him three times, and the third time he's hurt by it. No doubt there's a bit of shame in there. 
But what I, what I think is interesting is that Jesus is not afraid of the uncomfortable. You know, to make, to be uncomfortable in a conversation or for that person to be uncomfortable. And I don't think that we should be either. Part of being in a community of believers as we live in the reality of Easter is that we want to be accountable to each other. We want to be accountable in a loving faith community. And I think Jesus gives this amazing example of how to do that by reinstating Peter here. He reaffirms Peter's leadership before all of the disciples. He didn't need to do this. He could have let him go, but he wants to reaffirm Peter as the leader. And Peter becomes the head of the church, doesn't he? He provides an amazing example of what grace can look like and how they can deal with issues that they come to, right? And I think he's actually speaking to everybody, even though Peter's the main one that's being spoken to. Peter denied him three times. All of those disciples abandoned Christ that night. All of them. I think they all needed to hear this. And I think we all need to hear this. You know, it's fault-flawed individuals. God can still use us for great things. He's still here. He's in the midst of asking him, do you love me? He commissions him. And this is the second problem. He commissions him to go and to feed his lambs, to take care of his church. He, he, he reinstates him as a leader of the church. This is an amazing reality of living in the Easter story. After Easter, is that no matter who you are, no matter what your mistakes are, God's grace is big enough to, to overcome that. And he can still use you even though you're a flawed human being. And so we see that. So we first he dealt with the, the, you know, the old thing, the issue that they needed to clear up. He reinstates them and he looks to the future towards the mission. But there's going to be a cost for this mission. Peter, you know, he's going to feed my lands, but there's going to be a cost. Let's take a look at verses 18 and 19. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. So the conversation really did get serious here. Jesus pretty much tells Peter that he will die for this cause. He says, you used to dress yourself, you used to go where you wanted to go, but a time is coming where they're going to take you away. You used to live your own life, now you live for me, but you're going to die for me as well. Many believe Jesus was saying, you know, by, by saying he will stretch out your hands, that he was referring to crucifixion. Um, tradition uh, backs this up. Uh, Eusebius said that Peter was crucified upside down in Rome under the persecutions of Nero. However, we don't know for sure that that's happened. That's not from scripture. You know, the knowledge of, of knowing that your death is going to come, even though he says he'll be an old man, but you're going to die. That would be terrifying. All of us would be terrified to know that against our will too. But there is something in it, in this that might be encouraging to Peter a little bit that it's under God's control. That nothing happens that God's not aware of. God knows what's going to happen. 
also to know that Jesus would be with, with him through it. Right? That's part of living in this reality. That God is always with us now. But also knowing that your life matters. You know, that life is worth, and you were able to be part of something, that you are going to be part of something that's much greater than yourself. And I think that's something that could be an encouragement to Peter as well. George Verwer uh, is an interesting guy. I, I love his writings. He is the founder of Operation Mobilization, a big missions group. Um, he's a believer in radical discipleship. And uh, one of his book titles, which I think is great, it's a call to mission. Simply, come, live, die. Come, live, die. And I think that's the call. Are we willing to do that? He said this in another, another spot. He said, we who have Christ's eternal life need to throw away our own. We who have Christ's eternal life need to throw away our own. That's what Jesus is telling Peter. Right? The reality of Easter is that our lives are not our own anymore. That we belong to him. That he has a mission for us. And he wants us to follow him in it. You know, as we continue in that conversation, we see that Peter, you know, being Peter, starts to ask, and says, what about him? He's not referring to John. What about him? What's going to happen to him? And Jesus says, what is it to you? What happens to him? If, if he stays alive until I return. He says, you must follow me. And here's the point. All of us are called to mission. And it's not going to necessarily look the same. Some of us may be required to suffer. Some may live comfortable lives. Some might have money. Some might struggle financially their whole lives. Some people might live in the spotlight. Some people might live behind the scenes. The point, the important thing is that you accept the mission that God gives to you. That you're in tune with Him enough. That means you've got a fellowship with Him. But that you're in tune with Him enough to be able to accept the mission that He has for you. Before we conclude, I want to go right back to the beginning of the story. One more thing about what this mission might look like. We'll go back to the big catch. Right? And there was those two miracles. There was this big catch, and there was the one recorded once again back in Luke 5, when Jesus said to Peter, Come with me, and I will make you fishers of men. In both of these cases, these were expert fishermen. They had been out all night. And in both cases, they hadn't caught a thing. In both cases, Jesus instructs them where to put their nets. And as a result, they have this abundant catch, huge catch of fish. Of course, the point here, it's only in God's strength that they could secure such a catch. And that was true in these situations as they were fishing for fish. And it's also true when we are fishing for people. We can only com complete our mission with him in his power if he's a part of it. I think we need to heed this lesson. Many of us are experts in many different things. Right? Different aspects of Christian ministry. But if we want to be successful... We need to, to harness and accept God's power. We need to humbly accept that truth. Some of us might be experts. We might be, you know, the most persuasive speakers. I must be the coolest or hippest people. 
You might be relevant to the culture. You might be very talented in any number of ways. You might have, you might be very friendly people. You might have great logistics, strategies, plans, strategic plans. But if God's not in that, then it won't succeed. We can only achieve the mission that he's given us if we allow him to empower it. So let's remember from Peter how to live on mission for Christ. The key there is to let God empower you to do it and to accept what he's given you to do. It might seem weird that John would choose to end his gospel here. John is unique to the other gospels in many ways, of course. Uh, but each of the other gospels ends with the ascension, with the Great Commission, some kind. But I think that by including the story here at the end, John actually is giving us a Great Commission of sorts. He's showing how Peter is transformed. Peter, as an example, has transformed from a fisherman into the leader of the early church. He's showing how God took him and included him and empowered them, enabled them to become part of his mission, of his work. Once again, it highlights how God can take deeply flawed human beings, reinstate them to become missionaries in his kingdom. All of us are saved by grace and we all share this mission. So as you read these things, I hope that you're inspired to follow Jesus in the same way that Peter did. Once again, I think there was three things that we can take away as we daily strive to live in the reality of Easter, in the reality of a resurrected Savior. First one is to live a life devoted to Christ. That means giving him priority in everything above everything else in your life. Always ask yourself those questions. Challenge yourself to think, is Jesus my number one priority? The second thing is to live in fellowship with Christ. Meet with him daily. Also, meet with him regularly with your Christian family. And the third thing is to live on mission for Christ. Know that your life has a bigger purpose for you know, than what you think and follow him. The reality of Easter is that life is full of meaning and significance. That life is an adventure as we follow Christ. I want to conclude by reading a quote from Paul Smith. Paul Smith was the pastor at People's Church for a number of years. He was the son of the founder, Oswald J. Smith. And he says this in his commentary on, on John 21. He says this, The sobering fact of this story is that Peter and the others could very easily have missed the Lord and their future with him. They might have been completely overwhelmed by their personal dilemma, the futility of their lives and the chaos of their particular world, that they might not have even tried to look through the mist. I doubt that any Christian goes through a lifetime without ever finding himself in a boat of personal catastrophe. But he is always there, standing beside his fire, saying, Come, my child, it's not all over. I have something for you in the, in the future. 
that will make the shambles of your little fishing boat look insignificant and unimportant. The reality of Easter is that God really does have something greater for us. Our challenge is to try to live in that reality every day. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for Easter, Lord. We thank you for the sacrifice that you've made. We thank you, Lord, we can have a relationship with you, that we can know you, Lord, that we can serve you. I thank you that we have hope. Lord, Easter changes everything. And I just pray for each person here in our church who's listening to this, Lord, that we would live lives that are more devoted to you, where you are the central focus of our lives. You are the primary focus of our lives. Lord, that we would live in fellowship with you and with our fellow believers, that we would seek you daily. Lord, and that we would live on mission, that we would receive the mission that you have given to us, Lord, and we would allow you to empower us to complete that mission, no matter what the cost to us. Lord, we thank you for this new reality, and I pray that you would be with us as we strive to live in it every day. Amen.